Black Thursday by William Howard. First published in Castle's Illustrated Family Paper, 25th of February, 1854. Chapter 1 The morning was hushed and breathless. Instead of that bracing chill with which the Australian traveller outdoors generally wakes up, Robert Patterson found the perspiration standing thick on his face and he felt a strange longing for a deep breath of fresh air. But motion there was none, except in the little creek which trickled with a fresh and inviting aspect a few yards away from him. He arose and, stripping, plunged into the deepest spot of it that he could find. And thus refreshed, rekindled his fire and made his solitary breakfast. But all around him hung, as it were, a leaden and death-like heaviness. Not a bough nor a blade of grass was moved by the air. The trees stood inanimately, moody and sullen. He cast his eyes through the gloomy shadow beneath them, and a sultry, suffocating density seemed to charge the atmosphere. The sky above him was dimmed by a grey haze. There is something in the wind today, old fellow, he said, addressing his horse in his usual way, for he had long looked upon him as a companion and firmly believed that he understood all that he said to him. There is something in the wind. Yet where is the wind? The perspiration streamed from him with the mere exertion of saddling his horse and as he mounted him to rouse up his cattle. Horse, dogs and cattle manifested a listlessness that only an extraordinary condition of the atmosphere could produce. If you had seen the tall, handsome young man seated on his tall and noble horse, you would have felt that they were together formed for any exploit of strength and speed. But the whole troop, cattle, man and horse, went slowly and soberly along, as if they were oppressed by a great fatigue or the extreme exhaustion of famine. The forest closed in upon them again, and they proceeded along a narrow track flanked on each side by tall and densely growing trees, the creeping vines making of the whole forest one intricate, impenetrable scene. All was hushed at midnight. No bird enlivened the solitude by its cries, and they had left the little stream. Suddenly, there came a puff of air, but it was like the air from the jaws of a furnace, hot, dry, withering in its very touch. The young settler looked quickly in the direction from which it came and instantly shouted to the cattle before him. A wild, abrupt, startling shout swung aloft the stock whip which he held in his hand and brought it down with the report of a pistol and the sharp cut as with a knife on the ear of the huge bullock just before him. Louder and louder, wilder and more fiercely shouted the squatter and dashed his horse forward over fallen trees through crashing thickets, first on one side of the road and then on the other. Crack, crack, went the stinging, slashing whip. Loud was the barking of dogs and the mob of cattle rushed forward at headlong speed. The young man gazed upward and through the only narrow opening of the forest, saw strange volumes of smoke rolling southward. Hotter, hotter, stronger, and more steadily came the wind. He suddenly checked his horse, and listening, 
grew pale at the sound which reached him. It was a low, deep roar, as of a wind in the treetops, or of a heavy waterfall, distant and smothered in some deep ravine. Chapter 2 God have mercy, he exclaimed. A bushfire, and in this thick forest. Once more he sprang forward, shouting, thundering with his whip. He and the herd were galloping along the narrow wood track. But as he had turned westward in the direction of his home, the woods, of which he had before seen the boundary, now closed for some miles upon him. And, as he could not turn right or left for the chaos of vines and scrub that obstructed the forest, the idea of being overtaken there by the bushfire was horrible. Such an event would mean death, and death only. Therefore, he urged on his flying herd with desperation. Crack upon crack from his long whip resounded through the hollow wood. The cattle themselves seemed to hear the ominous sound and sniffed the now strongly perceptible smell of burning. The roar of the fire came louder and seemed to swell and surge as if urged on by a rough rising blast. The heat was fierce and suffocating. The young squatter's clothes clung to him with streaming perspiration. The horse and cattle steamed and smoked with boiling heat. Yet onward, onward they dashed with lolling tongues. Sorcerer, speckled with patches of foam on his dark shining body, seemed to grow furiously impatient of the obstruction offered by the bullocks in his path. As his master's whip exploded on their flanks, he laid back his ears and with flaming eyeballs and bared teeth strove to tear them in his rage. Robert Patterson knew that the extraordinary heat and drought of the summer had dried up the grasses, had licked up the water from Crab Hole and many a creek, had withered the herbage into crisp hay, and so withered the foliage that you might crumble it between your fingers. The country seemed thoroughly prepared for a conflagration, and only required this fiery wind to send a blaze of extermination over the whole land. For weeks, nay months, the shepherds and sawyers had spoken of fires burning in the hills. And in the fern tree break of this very forest, he had been recently told that flames had been observed in various directions burning redly by night. If the fire reached him and his herd before they escaped into the open plains, they would be consumed like stubble. The cattle began to show signs of exhaustion banging out their parched tongues and panting heavily. The perspiration on himself and his horse was dried up by the awful heat, and the dogs ran silently, only whining lowly to themselves as they hunted every hollow on their way for water. Suddenly, they were out on an open plain, with the forest on either hand, but at a considerable distance. What a scene. The woods were flaming and crackling in one unlimited conflagration. The wind, dashing from the north in gusts of inconceivable heat, seemed to sear the very face and shrivel up the lungs. The fire leapt from tree to tree, flashing and roaring along with the speed and destructiveness of lightning. The withered foliage seemed to snatch the fire and to perish in us in a riot of demonic revelry. On it flew, fast as the fleetest horse could gallop, 
consuming acres of leaves in a moment, still remaining to rage and roar amongst the branches and in the hollow stems of ancient trees. The whole wood on the left was an enormous region of the most intense flame, and that on the right set forth the sounds of the same ravaging fires. Being to windward, the flames could not be seen for vast clouds of smoke and with fiery sparks, which were rolled on the air. There was a sound as of thunder mingled with the crash of falling trees, and the wild cries of legions of birds of all kinds, which fell scorched and blackened and dead to the ground. Once out on this open plain, the cattle were speedily lost in the blinding ocean of smoke, and the young settler, obliged to abandon them, made a dash onward for his life. Now the flames came racing along the grass with the speed of the wind, and mowing all smooth as a pavement now tore furiously through some near point of the forest and flung burning ashes and tangles of blazing bark towards the galloping rider. But Sorcerer, with an instinct more infallible than any human, sped on. Over thicket and stone and fallen trees, snorting in the thick masses of smoke, and stretching forward his gaping jaws to catch every breath of air to sustain impeded respiration. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. The blazing skirts of the forests, huge isolated trees, glaring red, standing columns of fire. Here a vast troop of wild horses with flying manes and tails, rushing with thundering hooves over the plain. There, herds of cattle running with bloodshot eyes and hanging tongues, they knew not whither but from the fires. Troops of kangaroos leapt frantically across the rider's path, their hair singed and giving out strongly the stench of fire. Birds of all kinds and colors shrieking piteously as they drove wildly by and yet saw no spot of safety. Thousands of sheep standing huddled in terror on the scorched flats with singed wool, deserted by their shepherds who had fled to save their own lives. Chapter 3 But onward flew the intrepid sorcerer. Onward stretched his rider, thinking lightning-winged thoughts of home and of his helpless, paralyzed mother there. With a caution inspired by former outbreaks of bushfires, he had made at some distance round his homestead a bare circle. He had felled the forest trees, leaving one only here and there at such distances that there was little fear of ignition. As the summer dried the grass, he had set fire to it on days when the wind was gentle enough to leave the flames controlled. Watching, branch in hand to beat out any blaze that might have traveled into the forest. By this means, he had hitherto prevented the fire from reaching his homestead, and he had strongly recommended the same plan to his neighbors, though generally with little effect. Now, the fire was so terrible, and sparks flew so wide on the wind, that he feared they might kindle the grass around his homestead and that he might find everything and every person there consumed. But behold, the gleaming welcome waters of Lake Kolak. 
Sorcerer rushed headlong towards it and wading hastily up to his sides in his cooling flood, thrust his head to the eyes into it and drank as if he could never be satisfied with less than the whole lake. Englishman new to the scene would have trembled for the horse, but the bush steed knows best what he needs. He eats and drinks as likes and flourishes on it. Smoking hot, the rider let him drink his fill, and all goes well. The heat produces perspiration, and the evaporation cools and soothes him. Robert Patterson did not lose a moment in following Sorcerer's example. He flung himself headlong from the saddle, dressed as he was, dived and splashed and drank exuberantly. He held again and again his smarting face and singed hands in the delicious water, then threw it over the steed that now satiated stood panting in the flood. He bathed and rubbed down the grateful animal with wave after wave, cleaning the dried perspiration from every hair, giving him refreshment at every pore. Then, up and away again. He had not ridden two hundred yards before he saw, lying on the plain, a horse that had fallen in saddle and bridle and lay with its legs under him, head stretched stiffly forward with glaring eyeballs, and quite dead. Near him was a man who was alive but sunk in exhaustion. His eyes turned wildly on the young squatter, and his parched lips moved, but without sound. Robert Patterson comprehended his need, and running to the lake brought his pannikin full of water and put it to his mouth. It was the water of life to him. His voice and some degree of strength came quickly back. He had come from the north and had ridden a race with the fire, till horse and man had dropped here, the horse never to rise again. But Patterson's need was too urgent for delay. He found the man had no lack of provisions, so he carried him in his arms to the edge of the lake, mounted and rode on. As he galloped forward, there was still fire everywhere. He felt convinced that the conflagration, fanned by the strong wind and acting upon fires in a hundred quarters, extended over the whole sun-dried colony. It was still early noon when, with straining eyes and a heart which seemed almost to stand still with anxiety, he approached his own home. He darted over the brow of a hill, and there it lay, safe. The circle within his cleared boundary was untouched by the fire. There were his paddocks, his cattle, his huts and home. With a quick thought, his thanks flew up to heaven, and he was the next moment at his door, in his house, in his mother's arms. Robert's anxiety had been great for the safety of his mother. Her anxiety was tripled for him. Terror occasioned by a former conflagration had paralyzed her lower extremities, and now, the idea of her only son, her only remaining relative in the colony, being met by this once-in-a-lifetime fire in the dense defiles of Otway Forest, kept her in a fearful state of anxiety. The moment the first joy of mother and son was over, what a scene presented itself. 
The station was like a fair. From the whole country round, people had fled from the fire and had instinctively fled there. There was a feeling that the Patterson precautions, which they themselves had neglected, were their guarantees of safety. Thither shepherds had driven their flocks, stockmen their herds, and whole families compelled to fly from their burning houses had hurried thither with the few effects that they could snatch up and bear with them. Patterson's paddocks were crowded with horses and cattle. The bush round the station was literally hidden beneath his own and his neighbours' flocks. Stockmen, shepherds, substantial squatters, now houseless men, were there in throngs. Families with troops of children had encamped on the open ground near the Patterson house in temporary tents of sheets and blankets. His house was crammed with fugitives and was a scene of crowding, confusion and sorrow. Luckily, the Patterson storeroom was well stocked with flour and there could be no want of meat with all those flocks and herds about them. But for the cattle themselves, there must soon be a famine and the moment that the fire abated, scouts must be sent off in all directions, but especially to the high plains around Lake Karangamite in search of temporary pasture. Meantime, fires were lit in a dozen places and frying pans and kettles fully employed. For in spite of flight, loss and grief, hunger, as Homer thousands of years ago asserted, is impudent and will be fed. The stories that the people had to tell were most melancholy. Homes burnt down, flocks destroyed, children suffocated in the smoke or lost in the rapid flight, shepherds and bullock drivers consumed with their cattle. Survivors had fled to creeks and pools, and yet some had been severely burnt, the flames driving over the surface of the water with devouring force. Some had lain in shallow brooks, turning over and over, till finally forced to get up and fly. Still, as the day went on, numbers came pouring in with fresh tales of horror and devastation. The whole country appeared to be the prey of the flames, and men who were a few hours before out of reach of poverty or calamity were now homeless paupers. The Maxwells, mother? Patterson asked. Is there any news of them? None, my dear Robert, none, replied his mother. I hope and believe that they are quite safe. They long ago adopted your plan of a clearance ring, and I suspect that just now they are as much a centre of refuge as we are. But I would like to be sure, said Robert seriously. I must ride over and see. And he strode out, his mother saying, If you find they are all right, don't come back tonight. Robert Patterson was soon mounted on a fresh and powerful horse and cantered off towards Mount Hess. It was only seven miles off. The hot north wind had ceased to blow. The air was cooler and the fires in the forest were burning more tamely. Yet he had to ride over a track which showed him the ravages which the flames had made in his pleasant woods. The whole of the grass was annihilated. The dead timber lying on the ground was still burning and huge hollow trees stood like great chimneys, with flames issuing from their tops as from a furnace, and a red intense fire burning within their trunks below. Burning earthy matter came tumbling out at the bottom, smoking and rolling on the ground. He was about crossing a small creek when he saw an Irishman, a shepherd of the Maxwells, sitting on its banks, 
His clothes were nearly all consumed from his back. His hat was the merest remaining fragment, scorched and shriveled. The man was rocking himself to and fro and groaning. Fain, exclaimed Patterson, what has happened to you? Chapter 4 The man turned upon him a visage that terrified him. It was indeed no longer a human visage, but a scorched and swollen mass of deformity. The beard and hair were burnt away. Eyes were not visible, the whole face being a confused heap of red flesh and hanging blisters. The poor fellow raised a pair of hands that displayed equally the dreadful work of the fire. The young squatter exclaimed, How dreadful! Let me help you, Fane. Let me take you home. The man groaned again, and opening his distorted mouth with great agony, said, I have no home. It is burnt out. And your family? Dead. All dead. But are you sure? Are you quite sure? said Robert excitedly. I saw one, my eldest boy. He was lying burnt near the house. I lifted him to carry him away, but he said, Lay me down, father. Lay me down. I cannot bear it. I laid him down and asked, Where are the rest? They fled into the bush and they are all burnt, he said. Then he died. Robert Patterson flung the wretched man a linen handkerchief, bidding him dip it in the creek and lay it on his face to keep the air from it, and turned his horse, saying he would look for the family. He soon found the place where the hut had stood. It was burnt to ashes. On the ground, not far from it, lay the body of the dead little boy. Patterson hastened along the track of the old road to the Maxwell station, tracing it as well as he could in the fire and the fallen branches. He felt sure the escaping family would take that way. In a few minutes, it brought him again upon the creek by which the poor man sat, but lower down. There stood a hut in a damp swamp, which had been used years ago for the sheep washing, but had long been deserted. It was surrounded by thick wattles, still burning. The hut was on fire, but its rotten timbers forced out far more smoke than flame. As he approached, he heard low cries and lamentations. The family has fled here, he said to himself, and they are perishing of suffocation. He sprang to the ground and dashed forward through columns of heavy smoke. It was hopeless to breathe in it, for its pungent and stinging strength seemed to close his lungs, and water rushed from his eyes in torrents. But pushing in, he seized the first living thing that he laid his hands on, and bore it away. It was a child. Again and again he made the desperate trip and succeeded in bringing out no less than four children, and a mother who was sunk on the floor as if she was dead. However, she soon gave signs of life as she came into the air. The young man was now in the utmost perplexity with his charge. It was a heart-rending sight. The whole group were more or less burnt, but, as it seemed to him, not so much burnt as to affect their lives. 
Their station was three miles distant, and he had no alternative but to leave them here till he rode on and sent a cart for them. With much labor, carrying the children one after another in his arms, he conveyed the woeful group to the father. As the young man stood bewildered by the cries and lamentations of the family on meeting the father, a horse ridden by a lady approached at a gallop. This apparition contrasted strangely with the lamentable group of sufferers. The young lady was tall and had a most beautiful figure. She was mounted on a fine bay horse. The light skirt and broad felt hat were all the deviations from her home costume that haste had led her to assume. Her face, fresh and roseate, full of youth, was at the same time grave and anxious as she gazed in speechless wonder on the scene. Miss Maxwell, Patterson exclaimed, in the name of heaven what news, how are all at the mount? On this dreadful day what but ill can happen? Nothing is amiss that I know of, said the young lady. We are safe at home. The fire has not come near us. Thank God, said Robert. I was going to your house when I fell in with this unfortunate family. Will you ride back and send us a cart? But I beg you will come with me, for I too was going to you. To me, cried the young man in the utmost astonishment. Then all is not right. Is George well? I hope so replied Miss Maxwell, but the tears started into her eyes at the same moment, and Robert Patterson gave a groan of apprehension. I hope so, added the young lady, recovering her self-possession, but that is the point I want to ascertain. Yesterday, he went with Turson into the hills to bring in some cattle, and this morning the fire surprised them when they had taken two different sweeps along the side of a range. Turson could not find George again but made his way home, hoping his master had done the same. George has not yet returned, and the fire is raging so fiercely in the hills that I could think of nothing but coming to you for your advice and assistance. Thank you, Ellen, said Robert with a sad emotion. I will find him if he be alive. He sprang upon his horse, and telling the unhappy family that he would send them immediate assistance, both he and Miss Maxwell galloped away. No sooner did he reach the mount than, leaving Ellen to send off assistance to the Fanes, he took Turson the stockman and rode into the forest hills. It was soon dark, and they had to halt, but not far from the spot where Turson had lost sight of his master. They tethered their horses in a space clear of trees and fire, and gave them corn that they had brought with them. When the moon rose, they went on to some distance, uttering loud cooeys to attract the attention of the lost man, but all in vain. The fire had left the ground hot and covered with ashes, and here and there huge trees were still burning like columns of red-hot iron. Finding all their efforts for the night fruitless, they flung themselves down beside their horses, and with the earliest peep of dawn, they were up and off higher into the hills. Their way presented at every step the most shocking effects of the fire. Ever and anon they came upon bullocks which had perished in it. Here and there too they found the remains of kangaroos, possums and hundreds of birds, seared and shriveled into masses of cinder. Chapter 5 
They came at length to the spot where Turson and George Maxwell had parted, and the experienced bushman carefully sought out the tracks of his horse's feet and followed them. These were mainly obliterated by the fire or were unseen due to the rocky hardness of the ground. But through an indefatigable search, they found small signs of them and were led at length to the edge of a deep and precipitous ravine. In the ravine itself, the trees and grass remained unscathed as the torrent of fire had leapt over it, at the same time sweeping away every shrub and blade of grass from the heights. God defend us, exclaimed Robert. The smoke must have blinded him and concealed this frightful place. Man and horse are doubtless dashed to pieces. He raised a loud and clear cooey, instantly answered by the wild, sad, clamorous barking of a dog, which, in the next instant, was seen leaping and springing about in the bottom of the dell, as if frantic with delight. That is Snirup, exclaimed Tursen and the two men began to descend the steep side of the ravine. Robert Patterson outstripped his older and heavier companion. He seemed to fly down the sheer and craggy descent. Here he seized a bow, there a point of the rock, and in the next instant was as rapidly traversing the bottom of the glen. Snirup the cattle dog rushed up to him, barking and whining as if in a fit of ecstatic madness, and then bounded on before him. Robert followed in breathless anxiety, stopped the next moment by the sight of George Maxwell's horse lying crushed and dead. Robert cast a rapid glance around, expecting every moment to see his friend stretched equally lifeless. But presently, he heard the faint sound of a human voice. There lay George, stretched in the midst of a grassy thicket, with a face expressing agony and exhaustion. Robert seized his offered hand, and George called first for water. His friends started up and ran down the valley at full speed. He was soon back with a pannikin of water, which the sufferer drank with avidity. He now learned that, as had been supposed, in the thick smoke the horse had gone over the precipice and was killed in an instant. George had escaped, his fall being broken by his steed and he was flung into a thicket, which softened the shock of his descent. But he had broken a leg and was extremely bruised and torn. Life, however, was strong within him, and Turson and Robert lost no time in having a litter of poles bound together with stringy bark made soft with grass and leaves, laid in a sheet of the same bark. They had three miles to bear the shattered patient to whom every motion produced excruciating agonies. It was not long before they heard people in different parts of the wood loudly cooing, and their answers soon brought not only a number of men who had been sent out in quest of them, but also Miss Maxwell herself. We shall not attempt to describe the sad and yet rejoicing interview of the brother and sister nor the rapidity with which the different men were sent off tied to the horses and taken to the surgeon who lived two miles off. In a few days, George Maxwell, his leg having been set and his wounds dressed, had become easy enough to relate all that had happened to him, the dreadful night with which he had passed an extreme agony in the glen, and the excitement when he heard Robert's ringing cooies but was unable to reply. 
while his faithful dog had barked vehemently, it had seemed as if this was in vain. From the moment of this tragic occurrence, Robert Patterson was constantly in attendance at the mount with his friend. He slept in the same room with him and attended with Ellen as his nurse in the daytime. From this moment, the cloud which so long hung over the spirit of Ellen Maxwell had vanished. Amid the general calamity, this reconciliation was like a song of thanksgiving in the generous heart of Robert Patterson and quickened it to tenfold exertions in alleviating the sufferings of his neighbours. His joy was made boundless and overflowing by a circumstance which appeared to be little short of a miracle. When Robert rode up to his own station, he beheld his mother, not seated in her wheeled chair, but on foot alight, active and alert, going to and fro amongst the people whose destitution still kept them near her house, the mass of misery that she saw around her and the exertion which it stimulated burst the paralytic bonds which had enchained her for years. The same cause which had disabled her limbs had restored them. The conflagration extended over a space of 300 miles by 150, and far away beyond the Goulburn, the broken biver, and the ovens, we have witnessed the remaining traces of its desolation. Over all this space, flocks and herds in thousands had perished. Houses, ricks, fences, and bridges had been annihilated. Whole families had been destroyed. Solitary travellers, flying through the boundless woods before the surging flame, had fallen and perished. For weeks and months, till the kindly rains of autumn renewed the grass, people journeying through the bush beheld lean and famishing cattle, unable to rise from the ground, and which, by faint bellowing, seemed to claim the pity and aid of man. Perhaps no such vast devastation ever fell on any nation. And Black Thursday is an indelible memory in Victoria. Rhea. A West Australian Story by Selburn Rigg, published in the Australasian, 3rd of May, 1879. Chapter 1. He'll be dead soon, missus. What are we going to do with him? The speaker, a short, stout, common-looking young fellow, was holding down on the bed the body of a man passing through his last agony. A fearful agony it had been for the young wife to witness who was thus addressed. She was wiping his distorted face with a damp cloth. Her wide-opened eyes were fixed on him in terror, and every breath she drew was a sort of sobbing moan of fear and horror. "'What are we to do with him?' the young man repeated." They'll want a coroner's inquest, and if we have to wait till the doctor gets out here, it'll be unpleasant. Better fetch him into town. 
Oh, we'll take him in, we'll take him in, she said. We'll bury him in a Christian place. Well then, you hold on here, said he. He'll not be struggling anymore, I'm thinking, and I'll get up the horses. We must get off at once, soon as the poor chap's right dead. The young wife was left alone with the body of her husband. His eyes were closed. At intervals, long, laboured gasps for breath still stirred him, becoming fainter and more intermittent. She took his hand and called him by his name. But he had done with things of earth, and hearing had quite passed away. She held a cup against his lips and tried to raise his head to see if he could swallow anything. But there was no swallowing more for him. And feeling all the misery of her helplessness, she sat down sobbing on the bed beside him. And then her baby woke and cried, and she had to go into the next room to quiet it and make its food. And while the food was making, she kept coming back to look and see if he was still the same. And then, when she had fed the child, she brought it in, hushing it mechanically in her arms, and found its father dead. There was no mistaking now. She and the baby were left alone. And she stood beside the bed, too miserable and bewildered for more tears, rocking her body to and fro to keep her baby still. What she had lived through with this man, what she had had of joy and pain with him, passed through her mind. She thought of the time two years ago when he was courting her, this dead, disfigured body, then a fine, strong man, and how she had taken him to please her father, and how, on the whole, he had not been bad to her, though he was not the one she wanted. And then her father's death, now a year past, and the change in her lot which that had made, and the trouble she had known since then, when the love of drink had gained upon her husband, and brought him to this pass, dead in his strong early manhood. And then she thought about her future with the farm, and all the work she must now see to herself, and how she must keep things together for her boy, and it seemed to her that her pathway was very hard in life. And yet, it looked so bright to her at one time. But then the man came in, and she told him Jim was dead. And he said, when he had looked at him, Mrs, we better be starting off at once, after we put him straight. So they took off the soiled clothes in which he lay, and dressed him clean and neat and Sullivan fetched up the cart before the door and put a mattress in it to lay him down upon. He was a heavy man to carry, a six-footer, broad and big and bony, but between them, Sullivan at his head and the woman at his feet, they got him out and laid him in the cart. They sent a native to his father's place to tell him Jim was dead, and they were going in with him to town and he must meet them at Balop, the halfway camping place, by breakfast time next morning. Then the poor, stunned girl collected the few things she wanted for her baby and herself, and locked up the house and gave the key to an old native woman who would stop and mind the place, and so they started on their wretched journey through the night. The road was rough and rutty, full of roots and crowns, and in the darkness Sullivan could not steer the cart so well. And Maria, 
sitting up in it alongside her dead husband, took his head upon her lap to ease the jolts. And so they journeyed on over the ironstone hills where the mahogany thickets and growths of saplings enveloped them in blackness, and through sandy plains, past swamps and water flats, where the wind blew cold and damp, and the stars shone down upon them, and on and on in slow, monotonous progress, till sleep fast closed Maria's eyelids, and she forgot her trouble in her slumber, and did not wake before they reached the camping place at early dawn. His father and mother were there before them. They had travelled faster in their little spring carts than Maria had, and the distance of their place from Balap was not so great as it was from Hen. And as the cart came up, bearing the widow and the dead body of their son, they stood out in the roadway watching it. The father mute and stupid from the suddenness of the blow, from a sort of consciousness that some unusual demeanour was expected of him. And the mother, loud in her cries and lamentations over the untimely end of her firstborn. And Maria had to tell them the whole story, how Jim had been into town with a load of hay and how he had brought out a gallon and drank it on the road, as she supposed from seeing an empty case and broken bottles in the cart when he came home. And how, when the horses brought the cart up to the yard last night, Jim was lying dead drunk upon it and seemed to have had a fall and hurt himself, for he had bruises on his chest and arms and loins. And then when they got him in and laid him down upon the bed, how he took awful fits and struggled so Sullivan and she could scarcely hold him down. And how, at last, he had suddenly grown quiet and died. And Sullivan had said that they must take him in, for the government would want a coroner's inquest. She said all this in a weary, stony way, and the mother got up into the cart beside her, and she turned down the rug to let the old woman see her boy. In a strange contrast were the wife's stillness and the mother's lamentations as they sat close together, holding up between them his head and shoulders, looking at him who had been so near to both of them. To the wife, there was little pleasure to look back upon and much trouble, but he was still her husband. To the mother, he had been her pride, her joy, though nearly her disgrace, when five and twenty years ago a timely marriage with old Pittman had saved her when she was with child of him. But what she had gone through on his account had made him dearer to her than the rest, born afterwards. And when he had grown up strong and big and hearty, she thought that none of the boys about were like her Jim, despite the radicalness of his ways, such a grand figure of a man, so brave and bonny. And she had quietly brought about his marriage with Maria, who was an heiress in those parts, by reason of her father's farm and run and the few head of stock, and she an only daughter. Meanwhile, Sullivan had told the old man more that was only suited to his ears of what he thought had happened before Jim got home. And then they boiled the tea and called the women down to breakfast. Chapter 8 Midsummer had come on, 
The river pools were drying up and brackish. The grass along the banks and in the open flats was dry and stubbly. The cattle sought the shade creeks back in the range and the lagoons where beds of tender rushes grew on last year's burnt ground. Curtains of yellow smoke hung in the hot sky from distant fires and all around nature lay hushed in sweltering lassitude. It was washing day and Rhea and Elizabeth Ann were busy at the pool. On four forked sticks stuck in the ground, they had raised a leafy arbour to shade them from the sun. Beside them, a tripod full of clothes was boiling, and with skirts and sleeves tucked up, with faces flushed and moist, they bent over their foaming wash tubs hard at work. Elizabeth Ann belaboured an obstinate pair of Sullivan's moleskins. Rhea, she said, them breeches won't come clean, what with the cooking of their grub and the washing of their clothes and the minding of them when they're drunk, the men's more trouble than they're worth. They get their legs into a pair of breeches and there they stick until the thing's that black I can't do nothing with it. And she scornfully held aloft the offending garment. They're bad enough, the men, but with the women folk to mind them, they're of some use in the world, said Rhea, when they keep their place. The fella to them breeches ain't a keepin' of his place, said Elizabeth Ann, emphatically. Here, give them to me, said Rhea, flushing, and you do out the child's. Both women were somewhat out of temper and kept silence for a while. The owner of those breeches was doing his work upon the place with steady zeal. From early dawn till night he toiled and strove, and the missus had no trouble. A hint from her, and what she wished was done. Hard work was child's play to his strong arms and shoulders. He often growled and cursed. That was the nature of him. He had a bulldog's temper. But while he swore at what he did not like, he worked the harder, and no disinclination made him flinch from doing well the part that had been given him. But Elizabeth Ann, with her quick female eyes, thought that she saw a motive for this ardour, and she had said with purpose what had made Rhea flush. Rhea knew it well. She had gained more experience in such matters than had Elizabeth Ann. She knew that he was working for love of her and hers, and it pleased her to see what power she had over him. Elizabeth Ann could not be silent long or she would burst. Rhea, she went on, what's it like to be in love? Is it a good thing to be? Why? What are you talking, you great silly? Because there's a young chap as wants to try it on with me, I think, said Elizabeth Ann with dignity. And so I want to know. It's most times trouble to the woman, Rhea answered, sighing. The men want so much and give so little. You mind yourself, Elizabeth Ann, and don't be doing foolish. Oh, I'm all right. He'll not be getting over me. I'm not in love. I'm not that far gone as yet. Who is the man? said Rhea. Elizabeth Ann made no reply except to giggle, and Rhea, looking up to ask again, suddenly left off washing and screamed out, My God, what's that? and rushing up the bank towards the house where the ground was open, stared in terror down the river. Elizabeth Ann flew after her, and when she had looked, she said, How far away? Close up. It's at the halfway creek, Rhea answered. 
Elizabeth Ann, you run and tell the men, say I've gone on and stop and make some tea, a lot, and bring it with you in a jug. The child is safe up here with Dinah. Greer then saddled up a horse that was standing tied up in the yard and galloped down across the paddock and soon was lost to sight in a thin cloud of smoke that was sweeping up the river. Steadily and silently, the yellow cinder-laden fog came on, enveloping all things, darkening the sun. And every now and then, out at the back of it, with a loud roar, a swelling mass of blackness shot up into the sky, surging up, flame-laden with fierce swiftness as it left the earth, then billowing out, wider and slower as it rose, until it hung a fat black cloud high overhead. A terrible bushfire had broken out upon them. Elizabeth Ann ran off up to the barn, which lay some distance from the house across the small corn paddock. Sullivan and another man were there at work threshing the barley. Breathless with running, she called out to them that she wanted to speak to them. They stopped their work and asked her what it was. The missus says you will go down at once. The fire has broken out on us, down to the halfway creek, and she's gone on ahead, and you're to go, and I'm to make the tea and follow after. The men threw down their flails, put on their flannels, and rushed out, and Sullivan, after he had looked, flung down his hat upon the ground and stamped and yelled out, Blast the fire! He knew the work that was before them and the trouble they would have, two hands to put out such a mighty conflagration. Meanwhile, Rhea galloped down through the gathering smoke towards the halfway creek. The afternoon breeze was getting up and lazily began its work, gently driving the smoke clouds up the river and every now and then rousing to energy, it rolled up a suffocating mass towards her, which half choked both horse and woman. Then, again, it lulled, exhausted, and the smoke cleared suddenly off and rose straight up through the quivering trees, showing a long, flickering crimson line upon the ground, steadily creeping on with fiendish dance and cackle in its devouring course roaring out an exultant mass of whirling, dazzling flame as it caught some larger leafy prey, leaping madly up the dry and flaky bark of the mahogany stems to fall again in glowing showers to the ground. Rhea tied up her horse beside the track where he was safe and breaking off a leafy bough, rushed down to begin her work beating out the flames. The fire had run across the river, and was coming up in a straight line, square to its course, and she thought if she could stop it at the halfway creek on the house side, it would be best. There was less grass there, and the track would help them. So she set the feed alight along the track and creek, and let it burn to meet the larger fire. But... Before long, the wind got up again and the red flames bent forwards under it and licking along in maddening haste, in fierce derision, leapt track and creek and raced and tore its way over the long grosses of the river hat. How desperately Rhea began to beat and tried to stem the rushing flames and cooed for the men to help her. The fire scorched her face and singed her hair and the choking smoke enveloped her, mocking her impotent endeavours. 
but she was fighting for her home and for her boy, her all, and madly she swung her bow about. Wildly she beat and swept the flaming grass to save her homestead from destruction. And now the men came up and set to, and the wind lulling, the fire no longer ran so fast. And above the roar was heard the regular plash-plashing of the boughs upon the ground as they followed one another up, sweeping back the flames into the blackness they had left behind. Eagerly they worked, with panting haste, the fire seeming at one time to be almost conquered, then again breaking out savagely in front of them, behind them, roaring and swirling on with every puff of wind to stay again its haste and give the weary workers time to get it under, as they thought, only to break out afresh with fiendish glee, as if it felt its power and were playing with the toiling men and women making their frantic efforts. But at last... Sullivan and his mate and Rhea had worked round to the river, and on that side, the fire was safe. They flung themselves exhausted to the ground, the perspiration running in streams from off their steaming bodies, their faces blackened and begrimed with smoke and ash, throats parched and eyelids red and sore. And then Elizabeth Ann came up with a welcome jug of tea, and laughed at the scorched, grimy figures of the men and screamed out to her goodness when she saw Rhea's disordered, burnt and tattered clothing and gave them round the jug and they drank long draughts of the warm, weak, sweetie compound and lay back with a sigh of pleasure as they wiped their mouths. But their work was not done yet. Beside them was the deep river pool that ran up to the house. The fire raging on the other side could not cross that as the wind then blew, and Rhea had no fear. Now the house side was all put out, the other side could go, and she thought it would be just as well, for the scrub over there was old and dry and stood in need of burning. So they lay still and rested. But by and by... Shrill jodels from Black Diner at the house warned them of something wrong, and starting up, they saw masses of black smoke rising swiftly from the riverbed above the pool and billowing down towards the house. The wind had shifted, and the flames had swept across the riverbed up there and were feeding gloriously on the tangled masses of Russian tea tree bush and dry dead stinkwood sapling that lined the banks and lighting up the grasses were bearing down upon the paddock, doubling back upon their former upward course. The men rushed off towards the house, and Elizabeth Ann, bearing the jug, ran shrieking after them, while Rhea followed with the horse. It was but a passing blast that bore the fire down, and the burning patch on the house side was soon put out. But while they worked, making all safe, throwing the burning logs and sticks within the black charred stretches over which the flames had passed, and sweeping in the smoking cinders, Rhea was startled by the sudden crash of a tree falling close behind her and a wild yell from Sullivan. She fled before the showers of dead sticks and cinders that fell around her, and when the noise had ceased and she looked round, she saw Sullivan lying still upon the ground, half covered by the splintered ruins of the tree. 
She rushed up to him, screaming out for help, and dragged him out to the smoking heap. And his mate hurried up, and then Elizabeth Ann, and they knelt down on the black ground beside him, frightened to touch him for fear of what they might discover. But Elizabeth Ann yelled out that there was blood upon his head, and they found an ugly cut across it, from which the blood was slowly dripping. His eyes were shut, and he breathed heavily, and the healthy red-brown of his face was gone, and the skin shone greeny-white through the wet black grime upon it. His mate ventured to feel his limbs and body. Apparently no bones were broken, but there was another nasty cut upon his thigh. And now they had to get him home. And with some trouble, the women helped the man to take him on his back, and he carried down his heavy, senseless burden across the paddock to the house. Then they laid him on the couch in the front room, the same couch on which Rhea had sat when Geordie told her she ought to marry Jim, the same couch on which poor Jim had lain when he was drunk upon his wedding night. We must be taken off his duds to see if anything else be wrong, said the man to Rhea. And Elizabeth Ann loudly expressed her sorrow and her sympathy and her willingness to help. But Rhea shoved her out and locked the door, and then they cut away the short, thick, stubbly hair from around the wound upon his head and took off his blackened clothes and found some few hurts of not much amount, but upon the swelling outer muscle of the thigh was a bad cut and bruise. They washed him clean and dressed his wounds and put a shirt upon him. And before they had quite done their work, the man came too. And after he had drunk a drop of grog, they left him, sleeping quietly. You've been listening to the To Be Continued podcast from the Australian National University. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell someone about it. We'd love as many people as possible to hear these amazing stories.